We believe that design has a vital role to play in shaping the future of modern technology. In today's episode, we'll be examining how design can act as a driving force in making AI contribute to a truly exceptional world. To help us delve into this topic, we're thrilled to invite Pontus Bernestol, who has literally written the book on AI design, Design of AI-Driven Services. With over two decades of experience in digital service design, Pontus is an award-winning researcher and associate professor at Halmstad University, focusing on digital service innovation and artificial intelligence. In this episode, we'll discuss Pontus's insights on the role of design in the robot revolution. The first thing that we really wanted to know more about is Pontus's view on AI as a design material. This is Designing the Robot Revolution. Enjoy. Yeah, it's so as a designer, you are trained in using one or more materials. You could be, a, I don't know, an industrial designer being an expert in using plastic and wood and different kinds of metal in your physical designs, right? For each material you incorporate in your design, that materials that material has some characteristics that you need to know about and you have to have the right tools. You don't use the same tools for sculpting wood as you would in metal, for example. Now in in digital design, we are so used with we are so used to pixels and screens that we have somehow almost forgotten that there are other ways, other materials that we can design digital mediated experiences with voice being one rendering of it and artificial intelligence i view as yet another design material with its own characteristics requiring its own tools requiring new ways to think about what the end experience will be for example personalization is something that is harder to do without ai so when you bring ai into that you all of a sudden open up this box of opportunities with personalization and adapting a user experience to both context and a specific user, for example. So that construct is my way of explaining why AI is not just something on the fringes that data scientists and machine learning experts should deal with. It's a material that you could embrace as a designer to provide new services, new types of services and other kinds of user experiences. So that's, and like, the metaphor implies that maybe you should also add a few tools to your repository then, and a few methods that perhaps is not tailored to the traditional design materials of static pixels on a screen <laughs> and handmade rules and that sort of thing. So I'm thinking, I can really see that metaphor of it being a design material. I really think that is very pertinent. There are, however, things that differ from, if you compare AI to clay, for example, there is a certain complexity to that design material that might be off-putting to designers. How should we think about AI as that design material not to be overwhelmed and scared? And I guess first, if you could start with just outlining what the diff, like, why is it so complex? Actually, I'm going to challenge you a little bit because I think clay is very complex as well. <laughs> you ask any potter, you can spend a lifetime deciphering what clay is like. So I, I think, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to answer anyway. I think the way we understand machine learning in particular, AI is a wide concept, right? But let's focus on machine learning. The reason we think as designers that that's 
complicated or uh, complex, if you will, is because we are typically taking a technical view. I approach it from a user experience point of view. So I split it between prediction, adaptivity, and agency. So those are three concepts that you can apply to, in order to understand this material better. So you can use prediction, have the system help you predict certain things given a number of data points. You could also then adapt those predictions by using user models and context models in order for it to adapt over time. So adaptivity is the next sort of main characteristic, if you will. And then agency is a term that has been, it's not, I didn't invent agency, obviously. We have a lot of theory regarding agentive systems and all that. But it's useful for designers to think about agentive technology because it differs from the traditional design metaphor that we use. We are trained typically in creating tools. But if you have an agentive system, you could actually view it as more of a butler or servant or partner even. Because an agentive system could take initiative and do work on its own on my behalf behind the scenes when I'm doing other things. And maybe that is where the complexity comes in from a design point of view, because now you cannot, you can't count on that you have 100% attention from the user. That's actually part of the design that the user should do something else while the agentive system is doing part of that work and then report back. So now I'm done with this task. I did this, hope that's okay. And so on. And then you will have the meta conversation about the task flows that you and the AI have done together and that is that i give you is complex because then you mo you're monitoring and designing for multiple workflows some tasks are augmented by ai some tasks are left to a human and some tasks might even be automated completely by the ai and that requires you to think differently about work service user experience i mean it really when you describe it like that pontus it, it plays out for me i really can feel and imagine this revolution in how interfaces how we engage with digital services and the work of designers and on for some people that's really exciting because what an amazing thing to be able to work on tools like this for other people they might be actually a little bit scared of this because their work they've been doing for the last five or ten years is going to change so whether you're speaking to someone who's just really enthusiastic about this and wants to get involved in working on AI products and services, or whether it's someone who has maybe been working in a more traditional UX field for longer and is a little bit concerned about what impact it's going to have for them and really feel they need to raise their game to stay relevant. What's your advice for people of how they can learn what they need to learn in order to work on these products and services? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I have all respect for for both <laughs> groups. But I think that we live in more and more of a information intensive or knowledge intensive society in general. That kind of comes with the territory then that you probably need to develop your skill set. There, There is no way around it. So if you're hesitant, then go back and ask yourself, so why are you hesitant? You might have really good reasons for it. And I am not advocating throwing AI at everything in the world. I am very critical of a lot of AI applications. So it's not that you should be overly enthusiastic, but I'm, I would return the question to a designer who, who feels like, no, 
this is probably not for me. It seems difficult. I'm not going to touch it. Then I would ask yourself, so why are you in the field of design if you don't want to develop and evolve? That doesn't mean you have to be very enthusiastic about using AI all the time. But if you're turning a blind eye towards this new technology that is very much part of the ongoing digital realm, if you will, then maybe the question is, is not about AI, but maybe the question is about you and your attitude to your work. <laughs> it might sound harsh, but that's technology develops all the time. And we are in a space where we use technology a lot. So I think you should be up to date with what's happening. Do you think that there will in five to 10 years time, and I know that I'm now asking you to predict the future, but if, just for the sake of the conversation, do you think that it's feasible that any service system will be outside of using AI? Like there won't be any AI component to a service system? Yeah. Th so that's, a, that's actually a fairly tricky question for another reason, because AI has a tendency to be the thing that we haven't really done yet. As soon as it becomes well understood, it has a tendency to become its own thing. And this was mentioned even in 1955 or something with John McCarthy, one of the pioneers. And he said already then, as soon as it works, no one calls it AI anymore. When you're asking me if we can identify any service in the next five years that doesn't use AI, we have to realize that maybe things that we today consider to be AI will be just a natural part of any service. I can take another example going back. Relational databases, regular SQL databases that we use in every single application we build. That was part of AI research in the 1960s, right? So they called that AI back then because it was a part of knowledge management. So it's like a fleeting target. So the short answer to your question is that what we consider AI today will probably be naturally ingrained in any digital service in a, in a fairly near future, actually. And you can flip the question and say, which services today do not use any kind of AI? You have, uh, if you apply some sort of machine learning or data analytics on your web traffic for your service, are you using AI in your service then? Some people will say, yeah, because you're using some sort of algorithmic treatment on data that you collect in your service in order to improve the user experience. Are you using personalized recommendations in your e-commerce system based on what you've browsed, you are recommending these items? That's something we encounter every day. And I would say, yeah, most e-commerce platforms are using AI if you consider personalized recommendations to be AI, right? So it's, it's sort of a definition question, like what do you consider to be AI and not? Why is design the best way or a good way to define the problems that can be tackled by AI? Okay, so that's actually a, maybe a larger question than it sounds. Okay, so if we go on, a, on an epic scale here and ask ourselves, what is the key thing with humans? It's about processing information, right? That's our... If you look back in history, what we have done as a species is our ability to process information, generating knowledge, and that is the way we operate. And now we have some people claim that this is one of mankind's greatest inventions, AI. And AI is optimized for exactly that, processing information. So I think for that means that everything AI does will have pretty huge implications on us as culture species we do, right? 
which means that it's a very important problem area to work in. And that means it's probably wicked about the wicked problem construct. And maybe not all listeners do, but it's you can make a distinction between wicked problems and tame problems. And tame problems is the typical mathematical or engineering-oriented way to break down a problem into sub-problems. You solve all the sub-problems, and magically, the grand solution to the big problem just falls out by an equation, almost, right? But wicked problems, like almost all societal issues that we have, the criminal system, integration, global warming, healthcare, education, those sort of things, those are not tame problems. Those are wicked problems. That means that they are more complex. They require a lot of different knowledge bases and disciplines in order to address them. And there is no really stopping rule. You can only continuously address, for example, education or healthcare. You're never done with that, so to speak. So my response to your question, David, is, yeah, design is optimized for addressing wicked problems for information processing and important issues. And that's why it's very suitable and I would say it's imperative that we get new perspectives into the room when we're designing AI-powered services. It's too important to leave to a select few that knows machine learning or know the math behind the algorithms because they cannot have all the angles that we need to build and address our hardest problems. And currently we are actually having a lot of problems. I don't want to... <laughs> put a bad mood on the show, but the number of problems that we have with unrest in the world, global warming, we have the resistant bacterias, nuclear threats. We have so many wicked problems that design, if we could put most designers into work on addressing those, instead of just maybe optimizing for more commerce, <laughs> maybe we will end up in a better place. Mm. That would be my call to action for any designers listening to this. What are you doing with your time? Do you think... There is a way, and this is getting this is now big question territory here. But do you think that we actually have a chance to solve the take one of these issues, resistant bacteria? Do you think we have a chance to solve these issues if we don't, and I'm gonna use your word, augment our cognitive abilities? For specific cases, I'm not medically trained or a biomedics. I don't know. I just know what I read, and resistant bacteria seems to be a very big problem. Right. And we are in a rush to solve it. And if we, whenever humanity is in a rush to solve something, we need to process information. We need to generate knowledge. That's nine times out of 10. That is the strategy. And if we, to, so turning that question back to what would the reasons be not to use design and AI in order to address these challenges? If you can come up with an argument against it, I'll be listening. But my default would be, of course, we're going to use everything we have in our arsenal to augment our way to process information and generate knowledge. That needs to be the key, or at least the default strategy to address those kinds of problems. The reason why I ask is because I listened to some podcast a while ago, I think it was The Economist, Babbage, where they were speaking about genome sequencing. And that to me was such a clear case where machine learning has made it possible to make quantum leaps in terms of progress in this specific area that is related to the bacteria. Because if we understand these bacteria, we can do something with the genome that is. So I just think it's a fabulous example that you bring up there, that we could potentially solve these issues. We need to bring that capability into that. I think it's just 
a hopeful. I don't get I don't get gloomy or sad when you speak about this. I get hopeful because we're actually on a path where we might get some solvency to this solvency, where we actually could solve this. Yeah. It, that's the only way to approach it. Otherwise, of course, you need to be optimistic about it. Yeah, I, I totally agree. If you have a project, when is it time to decide that an what we now define as an AI capability, machine learning or whichever, that we need agency, for example, may be the way to, to speak about it. When do we do that? When do we decide that, yes, we need to make this an AI project? You can answer it from a ideal or a theoretical point of view, and you can also answer it from a practical point of view. I, let's start with the ideal one. So I'm going to go back to a very simplified model of what we do, the double diamond, right? That, that's something we typically use to explain to people what design is and how we work. And the double diamond consists of two diamonds. The first one is about building the right thing. And the second diamond is about building the thing right. That's usually how we frame it. And the first diamond, that's where the decisions need to be taken. Should we have prediction here? Is there an opportunity for an agentive service to, to be the best solution here? So I would say... Deciding that will be part of the first diamond. And then you can do that in a great way, building the thing. That's when you build the solution so that it's both feasible and viable and, and all those things. However, in practice, sometimes you find yourself in projects like this. They've already established that, yeah, these are the AI people that will build the AI service. You will come in and design it, right? And I've been part of those experiences as well. But then you have to ask yourself, who took the decision that AI was going to be part of this? And sometimes that is not grounded in research or insight. It's just they wanted an AI hmm. solution. And to me, that's the wrong way to approach it, obviously. I, first, I think we should define what the right service is, and then we just define how to build it correctly. Pontus, you mentioned a designer in the context of maybe an autonomous vehicle and some of the complex decisions that need to be explored there around, for example, safety. And in a previous article, you've written that the traditional toolkit that UX designers and service designers have with service blueprints and personas, for example, that maybe they're not fit for these more complex design decisions and articulation, visualization of complex design decisions that you have to make with other people. Do you see a new set of tools coming for designers? And can you recommend any tools that a UX designer or a service designer could use for iterating these types of services. So it ties back to the view or the metaphor of AI as a design material, right? With a new material, you need new tools. And there maybe some were provoked by my article on saying that service blueprints were conceived in the 1980s. I think it's time to move on because generally a lot of the tools in other fields we used in the 80s have all been replaced basically. But that's not to say that a service blueprint is a bad tool. I want to be very clear. And I'm using service blueprinting and customer journey maps and so on. But when it comes to AI, we have at least two ways to evolve those tools. One is to use as a design. So, okay. One is to use AI internally in the design team to make customer journey maps and service blueprints real time and based on real data. And instead of having that static PDF or whatever you typically draw your service blueprints in before, because that was only, will only be a snapshot of whatever the service was when you studied it. You can do that insight-driven qualitative research to build up the frame, and then you could use data 
to populate it and have it evolve over time, right? So that's one way. The other way is that typical service blueprint does not take into consideration that the service behaves agentively. It's still optimized for a tool where you are doing all the actions and the service response or et cetera, right? But I think we can just evolve the blueprint to maybe just adding a swim lane <laughs> with the agentive parts of it, or maybe extend it in other ways so that the agentive qualities of a service that sometimes act on your behalf becomes prominent. So the interaction between these different actors, maybe you have two different kind of AI services, you have one third party service, and you have two colleagues. Maybe that's the thing you need to model in the unfolding of a service experience. And you need to adjust, for example, a service blueprint in order to accommodate that. So I think, yeah, that we will have new tools. Unfortunately, I cannot by hand now recommend any specific tools like that. Um, it's still early stages. But some people have used actually ChatGPT for UX tasks successfully, it seems. So, so maybe that's, and now that the API, for, the API for GPT has been out for a long time, but now the API for the chat GPT has been released maybe last week or something. So you can now build fairly easily new tools and functionalities on the chat GPT API. So yeah, go ahead and start building tools. So I find it really inspiring as well. Pontus has written about this call to arms for designers, really, about how, where are you spending your time and that there's these wicked problems where the world needs to solve. It's really in inspiring. If, if I'm a designer and I hear that call and I really want to be involved, I really want to make a difference. Who are the people I need to work with? What are the professional roles or the job titles or types of people that I need to be able to engage with in order to work on these wicked problems and to get the buy-in for design who are they and what do they need to know about design yeah that's a great question i think there are two main groups one is of course data scientists machine learning experts and ai experts that knows the possibilities and limitations and about the about different kinds of ai mind you not only one specific kind of machine learning but you need people that understand AI in a wider sense. And those you typically find at research institutes, universities, of course, and also in a growing number of startups that are focusing on AI. So obviously, you as a designer need to talk to these people and bond with them so that they understand that they should also involve designers in this. So you need to make friends with data scientists, right? The other main group, when it comes to addressing wicked problems, are subject matter experts on that problem of course. So if you are interested in solving for resistant bacteria, well, then you obviously need to know more about the domain of bacteria and antibiotics and so on. So then you would need to talk to a completely different kind of, of group, namely, I don't know, I don't even know the correct terms for these people, but biologists and that sort of thing, chemists and so on. And they typically might not be very AI knowledgeable, actually. And they will probably not be design knowledgeable. So again, designers will work as a communicative bridge between different disciplines. That's apart from designing great things, we are typically also fairly good at building bridges between different disciplines. And that comes down to our ability to visualize and communicate and be pedagogues. So I, I would say one role that I 
often find myself in is to try to merge different perspectives and get the right people in the same room and start talking about important issues. But in general, I think you as a designer need to find the domain experts and also the AI experts and talk to them. So you understand when, when a data scientist says something about cleaning data, you will need to know what that means. And that takes time. And the data you've collected might be structured, but it still needs cleaning because the number of fields are not corresponding to what they need in order to build an algorithm or a model, for example. Yeah, those are two main groups. Could double click on the data just quick while we've got you, Pontus, like, because you mentioned there was the subject matter experts and data scientists, and we're, that's often data scientists are kind of the partner. We've, we've read and spoken about how data scientists are problem solvers, so they're often actually quite good partners to designers. They have a similar kind of mindset. But let's say, imagine you're speaking to a designer who's never worked with a data scientist before. And they now see, right, if I want to have an impact in this field, I need to really be able to have communicate with data scientists. What's your advice to someone? How can I go and learn practically enough? Let's say I'm, a, I'm not comfortable with maths myself. I'm not. How, how can I get to the right level? What is the right level for me to be able to go toe-to-toe and have a discussion with a data scientist and visualize? What's your advice to someone on that? Yeah. So my advice to designers who are interested in moving into this field of AI but have not used it before, I go back to the how would you as a designer approach another kind of design material? Let's say you're, this was an example that my former colleague, Therese, talked to me about a lot. And she said, if I'm a painter and I'm painting on a, with oil on a canvas, right? I know my paintbrush. I know how color mixes on the canvas and so on. I know that the output will be a two-dimensional experience, viewing experience. Now I get this mold of clay in my hand. Now I have to use, I don't know the name in English, what they call the spinning thing that a potter makes. What do you call it, right? (laughs) It's a spinning spinning spin that makes the clay spinning thing. Yeah. That's very different from using a paintbrush. And also the output will become this three-dimensional vase rather than a two-dimensional viewing experience. So let's go back then. So if you were transitioning to clay, what would you do? You would probably take some sort of introductory course. You would probably read a book or two, and then you would start to get your hands dirty in the literal and imagery sense. And it's the same here. And I don't want to shamelessly plug my own book, but maybe that's a good start. (laughs) If you're a designer interested in AI... Read read the book, (laughs) Designing AI-Powered Services. And then there are other books and articles as well, of course. I know that both Google and Microsoft have published guidelines for UX design of AI-powered services. So Google's playbook in particular is is a good way to, to get practical design patterns down and see how you can use explainability in your designs and so on. So I, I think just dive in there. Don't wait for it to happen to you. Take command and start defining what AI and design is because we are currently in a very exciting state. The patterns are not established yet. So if you want to have an impact on how AI will affect us as a species and culture and society, now is the time to help define that. There is no natural law describing on how AI will evolve. It's up to us to do that. And I, for one, think that design in general, has so much important things to say in that conversation that you should not sit idly by and wait for it to happen to you. You should take command and start addressing 
design issues when it comes to AI powered services. I have one question that ties back to the what we can do to get into to AI, understanding AI, data science, all of that. How can we help a data scientist understand the value and the outlines of design to get them to engage with us in a way that is better for them? My th- That's similar to how the conversation a few years ago was on also how do we get the developers to appreciate UX design and so on. And I think is actually fairly similar. We as designers, we pride ourselves. We're being pretty good at understanding what other people need, right? Mm. So do that with your data scientist colleagues. Try to understand what they need and then try to accommodate that. Because at the end of the day, you are colleagues, right? So... I think in order for whatever bugs them, whatever problem they have with cleaning data sets or finding enough data or so on, try to use design as a way to help them do that. For example, an AI-powered service requires constant refilling of training data in order for the service to improve. So what if you as a designer come up with a good way to close all the interaction loops in the interface so that you generate high quality data that can be used. Mm. Talk to your data scientist about that problem and say, hey, I have good skills in what makes people interact in a meaningful way. How can I help you get the data you need for this model to be better, for example? And you can also, if you have more time, you can also explain the virtuous cycle of AI to them that you start with data to provide a service. And if the service is good, you get more users. With more users, you can get more data. With more data, the service continues to be better. And and on it goes, right? So that they understand that if the service experience is good, you will get more users that can provide more data to your model. So they understand the role you play in that equation. So those are two things you can do. Fantastic. Then I have one more stakeholder that I'm curious about. And that is the process owner. Because in my experience, most of the time, the people that own the project is either, I guess, IT or data science or some tech function at a company. And maybe more commonly, it's the organization that owns the process. How do you sell them on the virtue of design? Yeah, my if. okay. so the big problem is probably that if this AI-powered service is owned by only the IT department and it is viewed as only a technical IT project. That's an uphill battle a little bit. So you need to make sure that you get the rest of the company on board. And typically what we have done at Hamsa University and AI Sweden, we have a project called AI.M or AIM, where we fast track company leaders into business design, service design, UX design with an AI touch in all of those three, right? And the output is a UX prototype that is AI powered. That means that they can use this to understand both the promise of AI, but also the process of design. So again, showing is better than telling. If you have an opportunity to engage in in those kinds of problem, projects, like the AIM process, for example, that's a good way to get buy-in from more than just the IT department. And when it comes to the IT department, we're using that in a very stereotypical way now, by the way, but the typical IT department might be very technical. They might also, by definition, opt for 
safe solutions because they're, they are in charge of a robust, secure IT environment. And if you're going to build innovative AI-powered services that will change the world, maybe you need to be a little bit more exploratory than what the typical IT project is. That means that my recommendation would be to involve more people than just the IT department because they have a tendency to be more focused on security, which is great, but it comes at a cost as well. The cost of perhaps maybe less exploration and in the long run, less innovation. So I am curious about one thing, and that is on this podcast, we're using the word automation quite freely as a positive for getting rid of stuff that basically I don't want to do by myself. I don't want to do menial tasks that give me no, like writing an email to a plumber. I'm so happy to automate that away. And it there is a, a, an aspect of augmentation there. I am reviewing that email, but it's a simple task. It doesn't require ChatGTP much to, to do that. Why? And I'm starting to pivot on this use of the word automation. Why should I be hesitant to do that? I know that you've written some about that. And I want your, I talked to Chris Nossel about this as well. And I'm really starting to see that this is maybe not good language from me. Yes, automation in itself is not a bad thing. It's just that it has become, you. if you go full on automation and see that as the end goal of all AI, you tend to miss a lot of value creating perspectives. And that's why I tend to be careful in using automation. And I also, as soon as I hear someone enthusiastically talking about automating workflows and, and thereby envisioning a future where there is no human intervention in a lot of workflows. That's where I become hesitant and stop them and try to, okay, so can we ask some critical questions about this? For example, we did some work with automating triage in the emergency room with a camera that can read the vitality parameters. That, after a design sprint, ended up being a very augmentive tool rather than automated tool. Because instead of having patients screen themselves and have the system prioritize and making the triage, the nurses could be very much more efficient and also provide a better patient experience by combining their manual parameter taking with the camera. It's just that when people throw themselves at automation, they tend to miss some of the perspectives because automation implies that the interactivity is low, right? And we as designers are trained to to where value is created in interaction or in use, right? That's why I think the agentive perspective where autonomy, adaptivity, and interactivity are all high. Whereas in, in full-on automation, typically interactivity and possibly even adaptivity is fairly low. The only thing that is high is autonomy, right? And in our static tools, our what we call assistive services, and that's what Chris Nussel is using as well, assistive and agentive, then autonomy, adaptivity are low, but it's the interactivity that is high. And that's what we are trained to build. And now we're just adding both autonomy and adaptivity and crank those up. And that's where we can find a lot of value creation rather than going all the way to full-on automation and removing the human expertise from the equation. So that's why I tend to be hesitant when people start talking too much about automation, <laughs> even though it's not bad per se. I really like that. And so say I'm a designer and I have a 
stakeholder who has a big pot of money for a, an automation project. They've sold the vision of automation and they've got the money for it and it's going to save the business lots of money. And we can see that there's great potential for this to be skewed more towards augmentation, that they should be thinking more this way. How do you deal with that conversation, Pontus, when you're dealing with someone who they've got their statement of work, it's an automation piece. How do you steer them in towards what you just described? Yeah, the critical thing there is probably to be smart with using resources and time. And actually, the emergency room project that we did, what we managed to do was to squeeze in a one-week design sprint to show that there is potential to use an augmented, uh, augmented perspective here. Because what can convince a stakeholder like that, all stakeholders are different, obviously, but what usually can convince them is to see a very well-made prototype in action. And that's what we did. We built an emergency room and had nurses come in on their free time, by the way, and have some students play patients using a mock-up of an augmented version of that camera. And by Friday afternoon, when we did that design sprint for that week, and we actually had video footage on how the nurses could use this camera in a much better way. And it was clear that the patients were, were being taken care of and not only assessed. That's a huge difference in this context. That was a very convincing statement. So again, using design methods and design tools to convince and communicate in a pedagogical way, that's key. And for us in that instance, a one-week design sprint was a very cheap way to go, so to speak. They only missed one week and got something really useful out of it. So that's one way of doing it. And Pontus, if someone's listening to this and they want to get in touch with you or find out more about you, how can they best track you down? I think the best way is to just look me up on LinkedIn. I'd be happy to connect. And uh, that way you don't have to keep track of email addresses and so on. But LinkedIn is probably the best way to go. Otherwise, I'm at Hamster University and uh, you can find me there as well. Yeah, that, that's the best way, I guess. Yeah, and I'm just going to support you in plugging your book. It's been fantastic to read that. But I find that now I'm in preparation for this episode, I reread chunks of it. And I think that is has been very good for me for my understanding of some of these concepts. And I think it's a, it's a really good resource for any designer that wants to get into this. Thank you. It's me that should thank you. It's really good. Thank you very much, Pontus. This has been really interesting. Really appreciate your time and coming on to talk to us. Oh, thank you so much. Always a pleasure. I had a lot of fun. Awesome to have you here. You have been listening to Designing the Robot Revolution with me, Jacob Magnell, and David Griffith-Jones. 